So on the fourth Sunday of Advent, we traditionally light the love candle. The key thought in today's sermon is that love covers over a multitude of sins. If you have to go, you can go now. You've heard the gist of the sermon. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Bob Goff taught us what? Do you remember the name of his Bob Goff's book? Love. Love does. Yeah. John 3.16 teaches us that love gives. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, etc. But today we see that love covers. The love God showed at Christmas involved his son Jesus coming to save us from our sins, to cover the debt we owed a holy God so we could be with him forever. Pretty astounding. Love covers. There are stories going around of the random acts of kindness sort where the person ahead in the Tim Hortons drive through pays for the car behind. Maybe that's already happened to you. Um, I saw on Facebook this week, not that my phone's going to cooperate right now, but uh, somebody posted one that said, uh, where is it here? Yeah. I just paid it backwards by telling the girl at the window that the car behind me is paying for my stuff. (laughs) (laughs) That's not quite the way to go about it. An elderly woman was standing in the checkout line at a grocery store ready to pay for her merchandise, a liter of milk and a loaf of bread. She opened her purse. No money was there, neither was her checkbook. As she was about to ask the clerk to put her things back, suddenly a gentle voice said, It looks like that is your lunch. The gentleman was standing right behind her, smiling. Don't worry, he continued. Today I want to treat you. Take your things with you. And the man pulled out his own checkbook, paid for her merchandise and his own. Well, a week passed by and the woman came back to the store. The cashier recalled the incident and recognized her. She approached the woman and whispered, Ma'am, maybe you'd be interested to know that gentleman's check. It bounced. (laughs) When we cover the shortfall for another, there's a cost to it. The beauty of Christ's gift at the cross is that it's rich and pure enough to cover all our sin debt. Love's grace, covering the debts of others, does not come naturally to us. Our fallen tendency is to mind our own business at best or or even try to take advantage of others rather than pay extra when they can't manage. Uh, For you've been watching the news, it's not been the best week for poor Mr. Trump south of the border. He suffered the indignity of becoming just the third president of the United States to be officially impeached. The two charges center on abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, trying to cover things up when investigators were seeking details. Although the House of Representatives voted to impeach him following party lines largely, it seems doubtful the Senate trial that's coming will actually convict him, again expected to follow party lines. Instead, he may be acquitted. Political alliances override the more fundamental issues of whether what was done was actually appropriate for a person in that office. But when you step back and think about it, isn't it actually remarkable that measures are in place for a nation to impeach its own leader? Don't we sort of expect politics to be about alliances, intrigue, half-truths, manipulation, maneuvering to one's own best advantage? Would the impeachment process even exist if the country weren't founded on a cultural past which had Christian principles as its basis? In some developing countries, if you've been there, corruption is rampant. 
expect to be delayed at the point of entry by some officer secretly hoping for a bribe. Dig further and you may find the line of corruption extends right through to the top. Lesser officials pay off their bosses who grease the palms of their own superiors and so it goes up to the top echelon. Jesus observed to his disciples in Mark 10:42, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. He's not introducing a radical thought here, just making an observation about how the world works, how business gets done in the political arena. Rulers lord it over others, exercise authority, even though that means abusing their power. After King Herod found out from the Magi about Jesus' birth, did he come to worship as he promised? No. Matthew 2.16, when Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. The so-called slaughter of the innocents. Welcome to our world. Even secular scholars concede that Jesus was crucified, not that he needed to have done anything to necessarily deserve it. His life was snuffed out because his popularity made him detestable to the Jewish leaders of the day and a threat to their Roman overlords. An innocent man was condemned for the sake of expedience. Pilate, the governor and judge, said, Luke 23, 22, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him punished and then release him. That's not what happened. A criminal crucified just to one side of Jesus bore witness to his innocence. Luke 23, 41. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Even the Roman centurion in charge of the grisly proceedings admitted an innocent man had been condemned and killed. Luke 23, 47. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Our fallen tendency to sin and attempt to pin it on someone else goes right back to the Garden of Eden. The serpent suggested if Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, their eyes would be open and they would be like God. Whoever, when they ate the fruit, their eyes were opened, they realized they were naked and sewed fig leaves together. The first attempt at a cover-up. Things weren't much different back in around 735 B.C., the time our scripture passage read earlier from Isaiah 7. And didn't Chris do a wonderful job with those great names like Sheer Jashub and Pekah and Remaliah and all those hard to pronounce ones? Great job. Assyria was the dominant world power to the north. The northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, sought to make an alliance with neighboring Syria to stand up to the Assyrian overlords. Well, what are you going to do when you're bullied but try to find an ally so you can be stronger together? Then they pressured the southern kingdom of Judah to join their rebellious scheme. When Judah's king Ahaz refused, they sought to force him by military means. Isaiah 7.1, when Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Isaiah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Scary times. Coercion, pressure, and force were how things got done in the political world of Israel. 
might makes right. Since the northern kingdom rebelled against Solomon's son, things got more and more unstable. The southern kingdom benefited from orderly succession through the line of David. Uh, the, the next king would be the son of the king before him and so on. But not the north. Consider how King Pekah here came to power. 2 Kings 15.25, one of his chief officers, Pekah, son of Remaliah, conspired against him. That is, Pekahiah, the previous king. Taking 50 men of Gilead with him, he assassinated Pekahiah along with Argob and Ariah in the citadel of the royal palace at Samaria. So Pekah killed Pekahiah and succeeded him as king. Just remember that little pattern for a minute here. This was not a new way to seize power. Years before Pekah, Shalom had done something similar, 2 Kings 15.10. Shalom, son of Jabesh, conspired against Zechariah. He attacked him in front of the people, assassinated him, and succeeded him as king. Uh, any guesses as to what happened to King Pekah? Hmm? All right, 2 Kings 15.30. Whoops. Then King Hoshea, then Hoshea, son of Elah, conspired against Pekah, son of Remaliah. He attacked and assassinated him and then succeeded him as king in the 20th year of Jotham, son of Isaiah. Uh, any volunteers to be king? <clears throat> Politics can be vicious. Dog eat dog, law of the jungle. Power corrupts in a fallen world. In some ways, the wonder is not that a president has done something that warrants impeachment, but that a country has managed to put a system and principles of justice in place that holds its rulers to a higher standard. Christians are called to be different. In contrast to the way the Gentile rulers who are used to throwing their weight around, exercising their authority, Jesus commanded his disciples, Mark 10, 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For, because, follow the logic here, even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. To be a covering, a sacrifice on behalf of others. In a world of political bullies and violent strongmen, God calls us to put our trust in Him and follow His ways, to be different, disciples of the crucified one. He alone is to be feared. He alone is worthy of our trust. God commanded the prophet Isaiah to take his son and meet the king at a certain spot, ironically, the exact place where Assyrians would meet Hezekiah's officials some years later. The Lord, speaking through the prophet, acknowledges the viciousness of that attack brought upon Israel by its neighbors. Verse 6, uh, get over here to the next slide. There. <clears throat> Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tobiel king over it. But Isaiah encourages Ahaz to have faith in the Lord. Verse 4, say to him, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. The attackers may be full of evil intent, but in God's eyes, they're just burnt out firebrands. He need not be afraid because God is still in control. Verses 7 and 9. Yeah, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. I love the firmness of that declaration. 
it will not take place. It will not happen. The Lord, Yahweh, is God of everything that comes into being, whatever happens. He is sovereign. We can trust His plans. God promises in verse 16 that before a young boy that's born about then knows how to choose between right and wrong, the land of the two kings Ahaz dreads will be laid waste. And in fact, that's how it turned out. Assyria came and crushed Aram's capital, Damascus, in 732 B.C., right, just two or three years after. And it's King Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria soundly defeated Israel that same year. The sign given to Ahaz to reinforce this was, that this was going to happen was itself a miracle. A virgin becoming pregnant and giving birth to a son? Nothing is too hard for God. As Angel Gabriel noted when making the announcement to Mary in Luke 1.37, for nothing is impossible with God. The boy born so wondrously would be given a very special name. Isaiah 7.14, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That means God with us. That must have been reassuring for Ahaz and officials to hear. God was stronger than any enemy, and he was not abandoning his people. Even when he disciplined them by sending them into exile in 586 B.C., the, the name of Isaiah's son accompanying him was a sign of restoration. Sheer Jashub means a remnant shall return. So even before the punishment has happened, God's promising they will be coming back. In all this, the Lord's loving graciousness is astounding. Let's uh, back up a minute and consider just who King Ahaz is. He could be classed as one of the least deserving of the kings of Judah. There are six reasons. One, he gave away all the treasures in the temple storehouses in order to hire foreign help. Two, he burned his sons in the fire. How horrid. Three, he encouraged corrupt Baal worship in the high places. Four, he replaced the altar Solomon built with one pattern after an Assyrian altar. Five, he used the original bronze altar of Solomon for divination. That's telling the future, decision-making. Uh, that's a practice strictly forbidden by the Lord. And six, he actually shut the doors of the temple, forcing worship out into the streets. Yet, in spite of all these evil acts, God does not desert his people, abandoning them to the enemy, but comes alongside to deliver them. Such mercy, grace, overlooking the king's many sins. Check out King Ahaz's attitude in response to the Lord's offer of a sign to confirm his promise. Isaiah 7, 10 to 12. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Such stubborn rebelliousness. If God commands you to ask for a sign, it's not testing him to do what he says. Ahaz just doesn't want anything to do with the Lord. If he were to ask for a sign, that might make him beholden or obligated to God. Whereas Ahaz sinfully just wants to do his own thing, rely on his own resources. Yet despite this sinful, adamantly stubborn attitude of Ahaz, the Lord goes ahead to provide one of the most breathtaking and awesome miracles in the whole Bible, a sign of the virgin birth. 
It will be fulfilled over 700 years later at the coming of Jesus. Matthew points out the fulfillment. Matthew 1.22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And Matthew, writing in Greek, uses an unambiguous term from the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the miraculousness of the conception is clear. It's not just a young woman. This is actually a virgin. Jesus will be absolutely pure and innocent, free of any sin legacy associated with male lineage. Love covers over a multitude of sins. God promised to be with Ahaz's countrymen despite the king's transgressions. Joseph and Mary were betrothed, a very serious commitment prior to marriage, kind of like our engagement, but more serious. It could only be dissolved by an official action like divorce. When Joseph found out Mary was pregnant, I love the way the flowers went flying last week in the children's pageant. What? He could have initiated proceedings for her to be stoned. That was the penalty for fornication under the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 22. Instead, what did Joseph plan to do? Matthew 1.19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Quietly. Not making a big thing of it. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Because he was a righteous man. Hmm. Today when somebody is described as righteous... The intended meaning may be something like a self-appointed morality Nazi. But because Joseph was righteous, he did not act like a morality Nazi police. He would have covered over the supposed sin quietly. That's God's kind of loving righteousness. We see God's merciful love reflected in the very name given to the miracle boy. Matthew 1, 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua, Yahweh is salvation. Particularly, God covers over our sin. Jesus will be both son of God and son of man, a unique birth of divine origin, sinless his whole life, a perfect sacrifice of infinite value, big enough to bring forgiveness for all people who repent and trust in his name who he says he is. Jesus' sinless purity is essential for his task. Hebrews 7:25. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He's interceding for you now. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. He's got you covered. As the Apostle Paul explained in Romans 4, 7, quoting Psalm 32. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Have you received that sense of blessing? Or are you holding out like King Ahaz, stubbornly resisting so you can keep on sinning, doing your own thing? What about when people attack us or insult us or treat us badly in our lives? Will we respond with loving grace? 
or in an evil-for-evil manner that spirals downward. Without God's grace in your life, you don't have supply to be gracious to others. Listen to two apostles on this covering over. First James, the brother of the Lord, James 5.20. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The Apostle Peter states most clearly this quality of love that forgives, absorbs, makes allowance for the failings of others, going the extra mile and forgiving again and again. First Peter 4.8, above all, love each other, how? What's the word there? Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. It takes deep love. Sometimes you've got to dig deep inside to be forgiving and gracious. How would you respond if a family member hurt you deeply by something they did? Would you be able to forgive them? It's not easy. Unforgiveness tears relationships apart. Bitterness hardens into a brick wall. By contrast, Emmanuel, God with us, makes forgiveness and reconciliation possible, first between ourselves and God, and then with other humans. November 1991, Jerry Jenkins wrote an unusual true story about a man awakened in the middle of the night by a phone call. He was groggy. girl on the other end was weeping. Daddy, she said, I'm pregnant. Though stunned beyond belief, he forgave her and prayed with her. The next day, he and his wife wrote her two letters of counsel and love. Three days later, the man received another phone call. His daughter was shocked by the letters. She was not the one who had called earlier. Apparently, some other girl had dialed a wrong number. (laughs) The daughter later said, These letters are my treasure. Real love letters written by a godly father who never imagined he would have to write them to his own daughter. Here are a few excerpts. This is what the father wrote. Part of me seemed to die last night. Not because of what it means to me as much as what it means to you. You were free to make all kinds of choices. Now you are shut up to a few and none of them to your liking. But God will see you and us through. Though I weep inside, I can't condemn you because I sin too. Your transgression here is no worse than mine. It's just different. Even if my heart did not shout out to love and defend and protect you, as it does, the New Testament tells me I can't take forgiveness myself and withhold it from others. We think of sin as acts, but sin is a package, an attitude that expresses itself in different ways and to different degrees. But it all comes from the same sin package you inherited through us. Christ is the only difference. God forgives this sin as well as others, really forgives and cleanses. David was a man of God. When he went into his experience with Bathsheba and in the grace of God, he came out a man of God, and his sin included murder. Satan has no doubt tried to tell you that this affects your standing before God. It doesn't, but it will affect your relationship till you bring the whole matter to him. There will be a a coolness, a separation, an estrangement, until you open the problem by confessing and asking forgiveness. I will not reproach you or your boyfriend. I will not even dare to look down at you in my innermost heart, but it's not because the issue doesn't matter. The responsibility is his no less than yours. This is not an ideal basis for marriage. You want a husband who takes you by choice. But if you face the issue and God so leads, he could build a solid marriage, 
we stand ready to do whatever we can. We're praying much. We love you more than I can say and respect you too, as always. Saturday, I was very downcast. I tried to sing as I worked outside, and then increasingly I seemed to see a calm and loving face I knew was Jesus. It was no vision, I didn't see details, but it was a strong reminder that he is with us and waiting for us to remember this. He loves us and will help us through, especially you. It's great to know Jesus is walking with you. While we can't say that God causes failures, he does permit them. And I think it's clear he uses them to build character and beauty that we never have without them. Remember, God's love is in even this, maybe especially in this. We're glad that in a measure at least we can help the daughter we love so much. This is a day of testing, but hold our ground we must. God will give us the victory. That's wonderful. We're looking forward to your being at home. Love, Dad. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a wonderful promise you have given us that you cover over our sins. Thank you for your vast grace. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross to make that possible. We're just amazed by your virgin birth, your sinlessness. How did you do it? How did you stay so pure? Lord, by your Holy Spirit, work in our hearts to work that divine love towards others, especially when we're hurt or abused or taken advantage of. Thank you for your love. Help us love others in Christ's name.